Good morning. If you've been here the last few weeks, you may be wondering what kind of church you're coming to. Hate your family, live in fear, <laughs> and now this morning, give up all your possessions to enter the kingdom. <laughs> what a call. So we've been talking about Jesus' statements that are hard to understand, and I see that Rich Lampman's here somewhere. Not Rich Lampman, Lambert. Is he here? Okay, or there's chocolate raining from the ceiling. Something happened. So Jesus said what? Or like Matt said, Jesus said what? You have to kind of use that voice inflection uh, to understand or to make sense of what Jesus is saying or the response that we're to have and Jesus' hard statement. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, giving everything away to enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler is the common no name of this young man that came up to Jesus and asked him a question. So if you would have your Bibles or your phone, or your, uh, open it on up, and it won't be on the screen now, but it'll be on the screen later. Uh, we're just going to read the text together and then go from there. So it's Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. Mark 10, verse 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus and his disciples were going up to the Passover, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive 100-fold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, we know it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. We know it's breathed out by your Father's mouth. We know that it's useful to equip us, to correct us, to reprove us, to train us in righteousness for every good work. And we know it is able to give us the wisdom 
that leads to salvation. So we ask, Lord, this morning as we hear your word and you search our hearts, that we would be found surrendered to you. Lord, we, we ask for you to speak to us about a greater surrender, a greater level of surrender. And Lord, I pray for those in the room who have not yet surrendered to you, that today would be the day that they would hear your word, they would hear your great message of the gospel and respond with a wholehearted, abandoned surrender to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the rich young ruler um, comes up in the harmony of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Uh, But what's special about Mark's gospel is there are three things that really drive home the point of this uh, truth that Jesus is giving. And that's in Mark's gospel, he says, Jesus looked at him and felt a love for him. And so we see Jesus not speaking harshly, but speaking truth with a deep affection for this man who is blinded to the fact that he's not in the right. He's not a follower of Jesus. Uh, The next thing he says is, whoever gives up everything for my name is what Luke and Matthew say, but in Mark's gospel it says, and for the gospel's sake. And then finally, Mark adds in this little phrase, Whoever gives up everything will be provided all that they need in houses, brothers and sisters, etc., with persecutions. Those three statements are what drive home what Jesus is calling the young ruler to and calling us to, and that's a wholehearted devotion to the gospel. In the early church, we see this profound reality in Acts 2 and 4, where the believers took all their possessions, and all of their possessions, they did not consider their possessions, but they laid them at the feet of the apostles in the church and said, let's make sure everybody has and nobody lacks. And imagine that, nobody lacked, because they were all willing to generously give. They'd sell their land and lay it at the apostles' feet. In chapter 5, we see this alarming activity that happens. Ananias and Sapphira lie about the proceeds of the land. They gave their land, but they lied about how much they made, and they kept back some of the prophets instead of trusting it into God's hands through the church. And they were struck dead. This is an alarming, alarming reality for us to consider. But what we see is God established his church in the gospel It was for his name's sake and for the gospel's sake that he called people out of the world and into the reality of his church, which is a people sold out to follow him with everything, where nothing belongs to them. And Ananias and Sapphira were a poor witness to what God was doing through his gospel, and he gave it as a warning to the church when he established them in that same gospel. So here in Uh, this message to the young ruler, he's saying, whoever gives up everything for my namesake and the gospel will receive eternal life. Now, our whole life is to be shaped by this very gospel. Let's go on and see what happens with this ruler as Jesus approaches him. So here's a picture of 
this young ruler coming and kneeling before Jesus. Now, again, they were going up to Passover. They were making that long journey toward Passover. So the, the ruler knew Jesus and his disciples would be going up this road. But not only that, but we try so hard to paint the picture of what was going on. It would have been a, a lot busier than this. There would have been multitudes going up, making the pilgrimage to Passover in Jerusalem. And this young ruler had a moment of dissatisfaction with his life, a moment of humility where his status and his money, he, he was willing to risk them for the moment to come up and ask Jesus this probing question because it was a question inside of him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same question that the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan uh, was presented to Jesus. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, I love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor, Right? So this probing question of what must I do to inherit eternal life is what this young ruler asked. And so then Jesus, what, what did Jesus say? He, he tells him, uh, give up all you have and then you can be my disciple. He was a wealthy man. He was a very wealthy man. Uh, we see that from all three gospel accounts. But he was young. I think Matthew's gospel mentions that. And he was a ruler. It's mentioned in, in Luke's gospel. So we have a rich young ruler coming up to Jesus. And he had many possessions. So he went away disheartened, thinking, how in the world can I follow? I can't give up my possessions. So Jesus was putting his finger on this man's heart. There's a very specific thing he wanted to address. Yes, coveting or, or greed, uh, security in his possessions, but ultimately there was something even greater that Jesus wanted to put his finger on. He had another God, and it was money. And so if we look at the commandments, we see that the bottom of the commandments, the 10th commandment is on the right side, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Well, that's brought out many times. Jesus said, beware of many forms of greed. Uh, in the Gospels. And then Paul says in Romans 7, what the law did is it produced in me coveting of many kinds. It showed me how deep my depravity goes and how powerful this greed has locked me into sinful patterns. And I need freedom. And that's where Paul declares, who'll deliver me from this body of death? So here in the, in the commandments, you see, you shall have no other gods before me. And so Jesus put his finger on the outward. And he said, you have many possessions. Sell all you have, give to the poor, then follow me. But what he, what he was really doing was saying, because this man confidently said, I've kept these commandments from my youth, Jesus said, you lack one thing. You have another God. I don't have your heart. So as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we know now that it's the gift of God. It's not the works, not the result of any works that anyone should boast. But this man was asking the questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he says, why do you call me good? Or, or in what sense do you call me good? Or what, what exactly do you mean by calling me good is what Jesus is asking him. Why do you call me good? He was probably flattering Jesus. Oh, good teacher, what was, must this moral, upright, rich, wealthy man who surely has the blessings of God because of all this wealth I've accrued, I must be honored by God because I'm moral and I have a lot of possessions. What must I do to inherit eternal life, Rabbi? He probably heard Jesus' teachings a little bit, passed on through other people, or maybe 
hearing Jesus himself in public at some point saying this call to the gospel, and he heard that it was different than what he had interpreted God's call for us in obedience to be. And so he had a probing question asked Jesus because it was probing his own heart. So he says, no one. Jesus said, no one is good except God. You know the commandments, and he walks through the commandments, and the young man claims, well, I've kept them all from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I mean, just picture Jesus looking at this man who's deceived and boasting, you know, ignorantly. But Jesus feels this love for him. And he says, one thing you lack, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So the poor, obviously, were despised. There was this idea that the blessing of God was financial, that if somebody was financially blessed, it's because the favor of God was on their life. It's not a lot different than a lot of the beliefs that kind of come into the church these days, the prosperity gospel. But here, he's saying, give to the poor. Well, I mean, that was a direct rebuke to people who imagined that God would bless people with possessions. Are you kidding me? That poor, cursed man who's not pleasing to God over there. And so it was a direct application of the gospel, of the gospel itself. Jesus, who was rich, became poor that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel in 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul's exhorting believers to be generous with their goods in light of who Jesus is and what he did in the gospel. So disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Last week, Pastor Matt mentioned that we can't be Jesus' disciple if we don't give up all our possessions. Make sure you understand, we can't. It's not that Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let you. He's saying, you can't. It's impossible. The power of greed cannot be stripped from us except by the work of the gospel changing our heart. And so we cannot, it's impossible to be his disciple if we don't renounce all our possessions, if we don't return them back to the rightful owner, God himself. And then prayerfully walk through our budget, like Matt was saying last week, and prayerfully walk through our time and our resources and consider, God, you've given me so much, because indeed God is the one that gives us everything, but then what are we going to do with it is the test of our heart. So I had one this beautiful possession, I had this beautiful possession at one point, this amazing truck I'm telling you, it had all the bells and whistles. It was a 1995, I think. Eight-cylinder, had good tires, because I put them on. They were terrible tires before. Uh, bought it at the Scott County Fair, or through a guy from the Scott County Fair who sells essential oils. Hmm, interesting, huh? So anyway, I uh, had this truck, and I loved it. It was the best truck I ever had. It, the one down around it's rear-wheel drive and no 4x4. Four four. So that wasn't very fun in the winter. But it was hauling all my supplies for all the handyman and window cleaning and things that I did at that point. Uh, but this truck had a tranny that went out. Transmission went out. And so we brought it to the shop, and they put a new transmission in. And they also changed my oil. The problem was something happened in the shop where they got distracted. They got overly excited about testing the transmission out and left the shop without putting engine oil in. Well, two blocks later, they realized the bankruptcy. <laughs> they realized that the truck had nothing to go on. 
This is exactly what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. On the outside, he's wealthy, successful, even moral, even devoted to God, right? He has God. He worships God. But he also worships money, and Jesus made it clear you can't. (laughs) You serve God or you serve money. You have one master, and your heart will follow because your treasure will be, your heart will be where your treasure is. And so Jesus is saying, it might be nice on the outside, but it's not going to get you where you need to go because the inside is bankrupt, it's empty and, and corrupt. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's why it's so deceptive. It's so deceptive to be deceived, right? Deception is so deceiving because people that are deceived don't think they are. And that's why we need to weigh in on the gospel and the impossibility of being saved. It's impossible for us to be saved. There's nothing that can save us. There's nothing that we can do. There's no hope for us being saved apart from God because we don't deserve it and we can't earn it. And that needs to cut deep at the, the root of the tree, as John the Baptist said. Put the ax to the root of the tree and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, real repentance will bear fruit. And so this generosity is not what advances the gospel. Rather, the gospel advances generosity in us. And so we get into this place where as human beings, we, we battle with performance and we battle with the enemy's condemnation. We think, well, how am I doing? And we, we start weighing in on how we're doing with the wrong perspective. It's impossible. So if it's impossible, then we need to to turn to God desperately. And when we do, then God will give us what it takes to change. And then we can take our possessions and not feel guilty for having a lot of possessions, but feel convicted for hoarding a lot of our possessions. There's a difference. It's very subtle. And this is how deceptive it can be. We have wealth. We're all wealthy in this room by the whole world standards. And we all have a great opportunity to be generous as well. So there's a way that seems right to a man in the Proverbs, but its end is the way to death. You know, moral, outward goodness can be inward bankrupt. It can be flattery and and self-righteous and ugly. But on the outside, it looks like it might be something that's genuine. So we need to know. So Jesus, when he's rebuking the Pharisees about how they wash the cups on the outside and imagine them to be clean, he said, you do all these things, but the inside's dirty. Inside, you're full of greed and hypocrisy, idolatry. He said, but if you give to the poor, you give alms as those things that are within or they come out of love, the justice of God, the compassion of God, while they're doing their tithes and offerings and all their traditions and sacrifices, when their heart's right and it's coming out of a place of love for God, everything within is clean. So Jesus was getting at the heart of the heart of the heart of the matter, and that's that the gospel has to pierce our heart so that we can live our life for his name and his gospel, to promote his glory alone to the ends of the earth. This is the call of world missions, and this is the the call of door neighbor evangelism. And this provokes us to not be so quick to close our garage door, but to cross the street first and give a warm high 
and be attentive to our neighbors and hope for that open door with the gospel by giving our time to them. So, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through a fire truck and a van? What is he speaking to you? Many of you are like, well, tell me, because this is kind of weird. So this fire truck is supposed to be a toy fire truck, and it represents a truck that my son had when he was six years old. And when he was six years old, he recognized there was a family who didn't have very much at the time, and there was a son in the family about his age. And he felt moved to give a fire truck. And this reminds me of a story when I was a little, when I was a kid, my mom did the same thing with me. I'm remembering that right now. Hi, mom. So the fire truck uh, that was given away by my son was replaced the next week. Uh, there was this drawing that they did at this ministry we were at, and a family would get their name drawn and, and win this big, gigantic garbage bag full of toys and gifts. And in that bag was a fire truck four times the size of the one he'd given away. What do you think my son learned through that? I mean, simple little things like that. See, God loves the simplicity of our devotion to him. And that little thing coming from our heart and genuineness is a big thing to God. This minivan represents somebody in our church that went on a road trip to get a new van that they needed. They needed a new van, and they went down to like Florida or someplace where you don't have salt rust and you get a better vehicle. And on their way back, they felt impressed they were to give the van to a single mom. That same single mom had a van that was about 300,000 miles and ready to die, and she started to wonder what she was going to do. What was her solution? And this person gave her this new van. Incredible. But this is exactly what it means to give up all our possessions. It means that we hold them more lightly, and we're ready to give them, even crazy measures sometimes. You know, Paul goes back and forth in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about, you know, you, you gave on your own initiative. You weren't compelled to. And you gave based on what you have, not what you don't have. And then he says, but yet, even still, some of you, you gave even what you didn't have. <laughs> when you were desperate yourself, you gave. But then he goes back to, but then it's equal, so nobody will ever lack. When you give they receive. One day you'll need and they'll give. You see what this generosity produces in a community of faith is a generosity that's like this continual cycle of giving and receiving and giving and receiving. And it's a witness to the world of the gospel itself. Jesus gave his whole life to the last drop of blood in generosity. He, through his, rich, his poverty, became Rich, through, though he is rich, he became poor, that through his poverty, we might become rich. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples in response, when they were, they were looking at him all big-eyed and gaping mouths, he said, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, this reminds me of last week again with Pastor Matt, he said, we need to let these hard statements of Jesus hang in the air. Even though we know it doesn't mean on the surface what it really means, it means something different, something that's attainable because of the gospel. But even still, to let it hang in the air, Jesus didn't say, guys, you know what I mean, okay? You're, you're, you're going to be all right. 
No, he, he, he extended it out again and said, guys, it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. He, he wants us to be able to weigh our own hearts with the truth. Where are we at? And then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So a camel was like the biggest land animal that they would see consistently. Um, another example is Jesus said to the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat, <laughs> it's annoying, you push it out of your way, and then you swallow a camel. <laughs> How hypocritical. Critical. But th- just the hyperbole, the, the exaggeration from Jesus was to prove a point that it's impossible. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for us to be saved when we depend on our possessions. But there's a change that can happen. So, here's the picture. Some have said there was a place in the wall of the city called the eye of the needle. Uh, It's easier just to go with the camel. You know, the, the camel analogy means it's impossible. But if there was something like that in the city wall, this lady, you notice, has nothing on her back, nothing in her hands, in order to make it through what maybe was called the eye of the needle. So that's the purpose of the statement, is to understand that we can't take our possessions into the kingdom of God. We can't hoard our possessions and expect that we're going to enter the kingdom of God. And so then, obviously, the camel looks at the other camel and says, you want me to do what? (laughs) So you may be sure of this, is what Paul says. Here's why it's so crucial to understand that it's not a light thing uh, to live with security in our possessions. It's not a light thing to covet because it's idolatry. So look what Paul says in Ephesians 5.5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is, you know, by lifestyle, covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So now we can see with the rich young ruler, he was saying, you're covetous, that's an idol, you're to have no other gods before me. If you stumble at one point, you break the whole law, right? And so here, if we're living a lifestyle of immorality, impurity, and covetousness, it shows that the fruit of the gospel is not in our life, and that something has to change in our heart. Paul makes it ever more clear in a similar tone of the same statements with an added statement at the end. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So what's clear in the scripture is that there's a constant exhortation for us to know that we're in the faith. We can look around the landscape and we see many, many prominent people falling away, you know, turning their backs on the Lord, renouncing the faith. Celebrities and friends that we have in our backyard, friends that we've known for a long time. The question is why? Debating aside if they ever were believer or not is the constant call of Scripture. Remember, Paul's writing to Colossae and Ephesus who are churches. He's not writing to a crowd of unbelievers in the marketplace. He's writing to congregations who are following Jesus. 
And in their midst are people who are wheat and people who are tares. Tare is a darnel weed that will grow up looking just like the wheat until the harvest. And at the harvest, Jesus said, the angels will come and they'll thresh and they'll take the weeds and throw them in the fire and they'll take the wheat and gather them into the barn for eternal life, essentially. There is a weighing in this age in the church where we're called to keep making sure that we're, we're testing ourselves to see that we're in the faith. Because if we're living in idolatry and only you and God ultimately know where your heart's at, but then our brothers and sisters, when we know each other enough, we can exhort each other. But, but knowing where your heart is at is so urgent because what Paul says is idolaters, well, the wrath of God is coming for them. And believers don't inherit the wrath of God. So clearly, it's exhorting the church to know, each one in the church to know where they're at. They were exceedingly astonished, back to the Mark passage, and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? And that's the great question to ask. Who can be saved? We have a problem of easy believism that's been around for years, especially in the West. You just say this prayer, accept Jesus into your heart, which isn't even in the Bible. <laughs> Simple little phrases that just kind of make people feel like they, they check the box. But if your heart is not undone by your condition and by the grace of God, is it changed? Can it be changed without being undone? And the answer is clear. It's impossible. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we left everything and followed you. You know, these fishermen and, and tax collectors and other trades, they had money. It was a, what's it called, an agrarian culture where you live off the produce of the land and you trade and you bargain. And these disciples were catching fish in nets and selling it across the entire Mediterranean basin. They were making wealth. They were self-sufficient. They were independent contractors. They were business owners. They had no lack. They always had their needs met. And Peter's like, we gave up fishing. James and John left their father's business of fishing. We left everything. What about us? And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. This is so perfect of a dovetail off of Matt's message about hating your family. <laughs> now in the gospel, we, we give up, we leave the things that we value the most, the people we value the most for the sake of the gospel in his name. Who will not receive a hundredfold? Now, it's possible that there's supposed to be a period right there because it's kind of hard to navigate through all of this discussion. Either way, either there's supposed to be a period after 100-fold to represent that it's eternal life, and then now in this time you receive what you need in provision as you share the gospel and in the age to come eternal life. Or what we see is with persecutions is what kind of levels out what this call is. So if you give up, God will always provide, is what he's saying. You will always be provided with brothers, sisters, family, 
housing. You'll be provided with things as you give it up. For them, they knew as they moved through the land and went from house to house and proclaimed peace on it and received the food and didn't leave unless the people rejected the message, they knew that by experience that they'd be provided for as they share the gospel. But for us in our day, it's not different. It's the same. He'll provide what we need. And with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, that's on that day. Uh, the, 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 the leader is the servant of all, right? And the first is the last. The last is the first. So finally, we need to ask ourselves, are we finding security in possessions? We know the common things about security in our possessions is that we like to have control, and if we have a lot of possessions, we have a lot more control of our life. We also know that it can produce a higher social status. The more that we make, where we live, all those kinds of things can provoke unnecessarily sometimes, but in people's minds, this idea of a social status. And it's easy to find comfort in our social status. Finally, or also I should say, false security. You know, we know it's false security to have lots of possessions because tomorrow we could have a fire. Tomorrow it could be stolen. Tomorrow we could go bankrupt. Our stocks could fall out. Whatever it is, we could lose everything in a moment. So we can't have security in it. Overindulgence is a huge problem, right? We always have more than we need, and we eat more than we need to, and we get more specialty coffees than we need to, and we get whatever, too many vehicles. We don't need six vehicles. We don't need, you know, all of us have different things that we could assess in our own life where we have an overindulgence. And finally, possessions consume time. The more you have, the more you have to upkeep, the more you have to store, the more you have to consider selling or keeping. And What do you do? Build bigger barns? (laughs) Somebody did that. It wasn't advised. It was a bad idea. So contrasting that with God's way with money and possessions, number one, obviously, we're to work hard with our hands to provide and not make anybody else stumble. Paul says that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Generosity. And gospel advancing is what the purpose of making money is. Because like Matt said last week, everything belongs to God. The holiest time, he said, is our budgeting and considering what we're using our money for, if we should purchase or not. Simplicity of lifestyle is what God calls us to. No matter what we have, even if we have a lot, he's calling us, live more simply for the gospel's sake and for your own heart's sake. And then your necessities will be met. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added. And finally, time is invested in people eternally when we have God's perspective on how to use our money and possessions. So I want to encourage you this morning to ask the Lord uh, these specific questions on this last slide. Am I Jesus' disciple and have I given up everything uh, to follow Jesus? This is a conversation that you can have now with the Holy Spirit and perhaps later with your family or a friend, a life group, but we're in urgent times. It's time to respond wholeheartedly to this call in the gospel. Uh, Things aren't going to get easier. They're going to get probably more challenging by the day, by the year. We need each other, and we need to surrender our resources to each other for the sake of the gospel. So would you pray with me? In response, Jesus, I pray for each in the room right now. You know their heart more than they even know their own heart. You love them more than they could ever imagine. 
And all of us, Lord, are far more depraved than we could ever imagine. And that's what's so amazing about your gospel is you meet us in that condition. And you give us patience over a lifetime to learn to surrender to you. You give us opportunity to sift our own hearts before your word to see if we're in the faith. And Lord, I pray for this room right now, any that don't know the assurance of eternal life because they've given up everything for your namesake. They don't know the beauty of this exchange, that you gave everything to make us rich. I pray, Holy Spirit, for that conviction this morning. Would you press it upon their hearts so that they can't leave without surrendering to you? Would you press it upon their heart, God? You've invited, you've called, you're pursuing, and I pray as you knock on that door that they would not resist opening to you in Jesus' name. And for all the rest of us, Lord, we're, we're weighing in our resources and our life and the idolatry we have and the worship to you. We want it to be pure. God, will you speak to us as families and as a congregation in these days? In Jesus' name, amen.